morning. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray, God, that your truth would impact our hearts. Lord, change us from one glory to the next into Christ's image. We thank you for the truth. We thank you that it stands, that it's timeless, and that it is uh, your agent to change us. Lord, we want to bow humbly as we read these words together, words penned thousands of years ago by Moses that was for the people of Israel and now is for your church in the New Testament age. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 1 through 9 is a section that I have called the Great Commission of the Old Testament. Many of us know the, the New Testament Great Commission Jesus gave in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching all that Jesus had commanded them. But perhaps we haven't thought about the Great Commission of the Old Testament as well. Because Deuteronomy 6 is a footing and foundation for Matthew 28, 18 to 20. The Great Commission of the Old Testament that Moses gave to the children of Israel right as they were going into the Promised Land. How do you pass the fear of God on from generation to generation? He tells us here. How do you teach people the Word of God and make disciples? He tells us here. And Jesus, if you sort of use that as a foundation, Jesus builds on that with the commission to his disciples that we are to make learners. We are to make disciples and pass the truth on from generation to generation in the church. And I'm going to show you how these two connect this morning. Probably all of us could mark the impact that someone has made in our lives, whether it's a parent a mentor, a teacher, Sunday school teacher, a pastor, a friend. Who's had someone who's been significant in your life to to mentor you before? Just raise your hand. All right. Yeah, many of us have. And if you've never had someone mentor you with the Word of God, someone to show you how to pray, someone to show you how to study the Word of God, it's something for you to pray for. It's something for you to look forward to. Perhaps the Lord is going to bring someone into your life this week or this year. And that relationship will be so essential to your spiritual growth. Maybe you've never mentored somebody before. And perhaps this is your opportunity this morning for you to think about how you can invest yourself in the lives of other people. You know... A lot of us can point to Bible conferences or seminars or even sermons or programs or books that we've read that have helped us spiritually. But the number one thing that helps us spiritually, I believe, in the body of Christ is discipleship and disciple making. It's mentors. It's people who invest their life into your life. It's life on life. And it's where someone gives you the truth, like milk and bread and meat, and they're they're giving it out and applying it specifically, and that's really what makes the difference. If you've never had that in your life, I would implore you to pray for that to happen, for you to be mentored by somebody else or for you to mentor someone yourself. The Lord opens these doors to transform our lives. And... I want to say this up front. Making disciples isn't something that is just in addition to your Christian life. It's it's commanded from Scripture. We're commanded to make disciples. We're commanded not just to give the Word of God, to give the gospel out. We're, We're supposed to do that as missionaries, yes. But we're commanded to go and sit with people and build relationships with people. Relationships that surround the word, that are surrounded by the word of God, that that bespeak the gospel, that promote Christ and his glory. We're commanded to do that. We're commanded to invite people into the local church for them to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're commanded them, watch this, to teach all that Jesus commanded the first disciples. That's what we're called to do. You say, well, are we supposed to just teach the gospels or are we supposed to teach... What Paul taught and Peter taught and John taught. Well, think about it this way. Paul, Peter, and John, you know what they were teaching in their own words? Everything that Jesus had taught them. 
They were fulfilling the Great Commission. And we're supposed to continue this pattern on to spread the gospel and to spread spiritual growth all around the globe and in Anchorage. Spreading the gospel and making learners. You know, a lot of times I think people downplay the ministry of teaching the word of God. But that is part and parcel. That is at the core of making disciples. Teaching all that I've commanded you. We have a K-12 through ministry that meets on our campus. That's our largest ministry. Grace Christian School. What is it doing? It's teaching. We have Alaska Bible College that uh, is coming as, as part of the classes are going to be hosted here this fall. What's going to be going on there? Teaching. Well, we say, well, that's very academic, isn't it? Well, not if you look at it in terms of making disciples. This is our ministry. But it, it's bigger and broader than just academics and curricula. It's having a cup of coffee with somebody. It's having a conversation with somebody. It's building a relationship. It's saying to your brother or sister in Christ, you know what? I'm committed to you. I'm going to build a relationship with you. Let's, let's pray together. You've got a question regarding a Bible truth. Let's not look at it across the table from each other. Let's sit next to each other and open the word of God and read about it together. You know, you've got this need in your life. Let me be your prayer partner. Let me pray for you over an extended period of time as your brother or sister in Christ. That's, that's discipleship. That's being a learner and passing down what you've learned to other people. And that is what Moses was promoting in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Throughout the Bible, this is pictured as parenting. Uh, The Apostle John, he said he had no greater joy than to see his children walking in the truth. 3 John chapter 1 verse 4. Paul said, you are my glory and joy, a very paternal term to the church in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and 3. Jesus looked at the crowd and said, you know what? You're asking me where my mother and my brothers are, but you are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. This is how you should view each other. And this is how you should view your calling as a Christian. Making a disciple, I want to just say this again, to make disciples is commanded. It's not an option to just ignore this idea as something that other people do. You are commanded to build relationships and make learners of Christ. It's what we are. It's who God made us to be. It's why we should study the Bible. Do we study for our own hearts? Yes. But you should study for others. Why do we pray? We pray for our own hearts, for our own walks? Yes. But we should pray for others. It's commanded. It's making disciples. There are several connections between Deuteronomy 6 and Matthew 28. And Deuteronomy 6, when you look at it as something that is the foundation for what we should be all about, you see so many practical ways to teach other people that are found in this text. As we open it up, I want to just give you a little bit of the historical background of what was going on. There's real urgency in these words. There are energy, there's energy here in Moses' teaching and what he's writing here. Because, as you'll remember, the children of Israel had just wandered through the wilderness for 40 years. And now they are due east of the Jordan River, getting ready to cross over miraculously because God was going to stack the water up on one side. And they were going to cross over into the promised land. If you turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 1, you see a little bit of a a contextual statement here in verses 1 and 2. Moses, who wrote Deuteronomy, he really titled this book of the Bible, the words. He says, these are the words, verse one, that Moses spoke. It was called the words. He was talking authoritatively about these words. And Deuteronomy, that title came because that title means second law. And what he was doing here is he wasn't stating a new law, but he was re-giving the law that he had written already. 
He had written the book of Exodus. Remember where the Ten Commandments are found and explained in Exodus chapter 20 and following? And then now, 40 years later, right as they're passing into the land of Canaan, he wrote Deuteronomy, which is reiterating and restating what he had already written in the book of Exodus. That's where you get the words Deuteronomy or second law. And there's urgency here because what should have taken only 11 days in terms of a journey out of Egypt to the promised land, took 40 years. Look at verse 2. It is 11 days journey from Horeb by way, by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. They went those 11 days. They sent the 12 spies in. Two, Two of them, Joshua and Caleb, manned up and they said, look, let's go for it. Let's take the hill. The others said, we're scared of the giants. We're not going. And so they convinced everybody to basically disobey the Lord. And what happened is the first generation fell in the wilderness. Only Joshua and Caleb were permitted as part of that first group to go into the promised land. Not even Moses was going to be able to go. We know that he was obeying the Lord faithfully as Israel's hero and four-star general, the greatest leader that Israel ever knew. He was smacking the rock obediently. Water was flowing from it but then became frustrated himself. And instead of speaking to the rock, which God had commanded him to do, he struck it again. It's a picture of great disobedience as the rock represented Christ and he was disobeying God's command. And so he was forbidden to go into the promised land. But Moses unselfishly was saying, I am now commissioning you as your general, as your father in the faith to send you into the promised land as the second generation. And that's exactly what they were going to do. But he wanted to equip them. He wanted to send them with equipping, with a strategy, with a plan for the fear of God to be passed down from generation to generation to the people of Israel. A major theme, as you turn back to Deuteronomy 6, a major theme in this book is obedience. It's 34 chapters long and verse chapters 5 through 26 talk about obeying the Lord. It's what God expects from his people. And chapter 5, which is right before this section, is the Ten Commandments. And so Moses has just said, listen, this is what you are to obey. And now as you go into chapter 6, he's saying, this is the impact of that obedience. This is what this will look like for your people for the Israelites. And this is how you obey the Ten Commandments. It's what it looks like in shoe leather faith. If you're breaking down this section of verses 1 through 9, verses 1 through 3 is Moses' vision statement. This is Moses casting a vision for the people of Israel, for millions of people crossing the Jordan into the Promised Land. And then Verses 4 through 9 is the practical application, the how-to in terms of living it out. But let's look first at Moses' vision statement. It's verses 1 and 2 at the beginning part. It's his charge to obey. It says, this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you. Let's stop there. Commandment. It's an umbrella term. It's basically repeated with Moses saying, these are the statutes and the rules. These are the commands. These are the Ten Commandments. And here's the commentary on all of the Ten Commandments. Here's case law. Here's how it will look like in the promised land for you. That's what he's bringing up. And he brings it up in all humility because he says, they're the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you. I just want to highlight that phrase for a second. It's a phrase of humility. Remember, Moses, he wasn't going to be able to go into the promised land. He knew that he wasn't really anybody, just like we know that we're not really anybody in the kingdom of God. I mean, we're made in the image of God, but we're just servants. Moses knew he was a gutter for God's grace here. And he said, look, I'm just giving you what the Lord had commanded me to give to you. And I think that's a good word in terms of how we should approach people in discipleship. We're not coming heavy-handedly. We're not coming with some sort of raised fist and some sort of battle charge with the Word of God as much as just saying, listen, 
can I show you something that's impacted my life from Scripture? Can I teach you how Jesus has changed my life? Can I share with you a story about how the Lord has sustained me through this or that? And show you from the Word of God. So Moses, he's just giving the Word of God out as a humble servant. And I appreciate that tone of humility. He knew he was just a mouthpiece for the Lord. But as he was giving the Word of God... He knew that there was shoe leather to it. Look at verse 1 again. That you may do them in the land that you're going over to possess it. He wanted them to be doers of the word, word not just hearers only, James 1, 22. He wanted it to come to life. And he wanted it to hit their heart. Look at verse 2. That you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments. He didn't just want, Moses didn't want him just to obey. He didn't just want raw obedience. Moses wanted there to be a transference of the word of God down from one generation to the next so that the fear of God would transfer down from one generation to the next. This is our goal in the home, by the way. We want to transfer down the fear of God to our kids. There's one thing that we do in our lifetime, that's what we should do. This passage has eaten me alive this week. (laughs) It's hard to meditate on passages like these when you feel very, very busy. But here's the priority. Transferring down the fear of God to your kids. And in the New Covenant, Jesus' Great Commission, it's to transfer the fear of God and make disciples not just in your home but out in the world, in relationships, or in the church with people who need to hear from you, where you can give the word of God to them and bring the fear of God into their lives. Now you say, what is the fear of God? Well, it's not shrinking back fear. It's, it's reverential awe of God. You want people to have a high view of God, a wide view of God, a big view of God. And Moses is showing us how to do this. He's saying that, that this kind of transferring of the fear of God goes to you and your son and your son's son. Just stop and think about that for a second. This is, this is exponential impact. Moses is talking about a hundred years of impact where the word of God is transforming people's lives. It's you, it's your kid, and then you're thinking about your grandkid and you're thinking about your great-grandkid in this process. Isn't that great? Think about how much of an impact that is. It's a massive pyramid scheme. It's a sanctified Amway, right? Right here. It's, it's, it's the advancement of the invisible kingdom of God where people are being transformed just because you were willing to have a cup of coffee with them or if you don't like coffee, a Coke or whatever with them with the word of God. You were willing to put yourself out there Paul, he constructed the same kind of strategy in 2 Timothy 2, 2, where he said, look, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And he's talking to Timothy and he says, and what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses in trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So you got Paul to Timothy to faithful men who will then teach others also. That's how you get the whole world to hear the gospel. You say, you know, now with the internet and with, uh, you know, all kinds of advanced technology and camera work, the whole world is hearing the gospel by TV. Well, I'm all for open air preaching. I mean, I'm, you know, definitely a fan of the ministry of Billy Graham and others who have preached long and wide into open-air preaching. You've got George Whitfield. You've got Jonathan Edwards. You've got um, many revivals that have taken place. You've got the Jesus Movement from the 1970s that, that covered a wide area of the world in terms of the gospel going out and people being saved. But really where it gets done is not just in the open-air preaching. It wasn't just Pentecost where the church grew. That was the beginning point. 
but it's through the invisible, behind-the-scenes, life-on-life ministry of discipling others. Uh, recently, I, before coming up to Anchorage, went through Lynchburg, Virginia, where I went to college at Liberty, and I was able to meet with a mentor of mine, Dr. Paul Fink. And Dr. Paul Fink is kind of a guy who's not widely known. He's had sort of an obscure behind-the-scenes ministry, but he taught me New Testament survey, and he taught me the pastoral epistles, and then he taught me inductive Bible study, so he taught me how to study the Bible. Then he taught me homiletics one, taught me how to preach, and then homiletics two. And though I learned how to preach again at a seminary and then how to preach again at another level, that was really where I learned to preach. He was the mentor in my life. And it wasn't just functional mentoring. It was that his life was was put out there and it connected with me. Now, this man has had quite an impact and it's been behind the scenes. He's 80 years old now and he's finishing his sort of teaching tenure. And we met in this sort of um, dive, you know, over burgers. And I just looked at him and said, listen, I'm getting ready to go up to Anchorage and preach and I've been an associate pastor for all these years, but I just wanted to thank you for investing your life into mine. And he told me a story about how his brother had been killed in World War II and how he was uh, shipwrecked on the USS Juno. And so his brother's name is somewhere on a placard in Juno, and one day I'll probably go look at it. But it was just a unique time to connect with this man and to say, you know, it's been a decade and a half since I was under your teaching but now it's going to come to fruition. That's how the invisible kingdom of God works. He's just this man who's in a back office with squeaky chairs and, you know, old file cabinets. But he's doing this ministry, training up men to teach the word of God and people are going out. And we talked about how he trained men at Grace Theological Seminary in Winona Lake, Indiana. And one of those men was Larry Smithwick, the founding pastor of Anchorage Grace Church. And then another man that he mentored and trained was a mentor of mine at the Bible Church, where I had just come from. And so Dr. Fink, you know, almost by accident, has impacted the kingdom of God in a significant way. Half of the faculty at the Master's Seminary was trained under Dr. Fink at Grace Theological Seminary. And half of the faculty and Bible teachers still at Liberty University were trained under Dr. Fink at some point. He's just an amazing guy, and he's just a man. He's just behind the scenes. He, he's kind of a, a trip to be around because he, he pulled out my file when I was sitting with him at Liberty. I mean, he goes to his filing cabinet, he found me, found all my, you know, chinks and foibles and, you know, problems in preaching and began to talk through that with me there. It's like, man, his schooling never ends, does it? It's just after me, but I just kind of consider myself as a grandson in the faith. But listen, you don't know the kind of impact that you're having as you disciple children, as you teach in Awana, as you teach in Sunday school, as you, as you put yourself out there and begin to build a relationship with a young single gal or, or somebody who's hurting or someone who's just been divorced and you, you open your arms to that person, Right. And as you do that, you're impacting the kingdom of God and you don't even know the wide and far impact that's taking place. It's all happening in obscurity. Well, what Moses promises here is if you will obey the commands and you will fear the Lord God through this obedience, there's a reward. The end of verse 2. It says, all the days of your life and that your days may be long He's saying that in the promised land, your your life will be long through this obedience. Look at verse 3. He says, Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, there's obedience again, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly. There's that exponential impact. It's not just open air teaching and, and making disciples that just show up and leave. It's the idea of transferring the word of God strategically through the generations. And then he says, as the Lord, the God of your fathers has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. He's saying that if you'll be obedient, you will have the promised land, which for the New Testament Christian, you know what the promised land is a symbol of? Heaven. Heaven. 
We're like those Old Testament saints on the precipice of going into heaven. Hebrews chapter 3 talks about the first generation, how they fell and they didn't reach the promised land, which is rest, the place of rest. But the second generation did get to enter into God's rest. And then the writer of Hebrews goes on to say, look, if you'll be faithful, you will one day enter into God's rest, which is heaven. So the land flowing with milk and honey between the Tigris and Euphrates, that fertile ground was given as a promised land. And we have our own promised land that we're looking forward to. So we're to make disciples in our home and around us that will create this generational replication around the world as we look forward to heaven. It's a reward. Well, we've seen Moses' vision. Now let's look at Moses' application in verses 4 through 9. Verses 4 through 9 is the how-to of discipleship. If you ever wanted a quick and easy and succinct passage on how to give the Word of God out to people, it's verses 4 through 9. He starts with the famous Shema words where he says, Hear, O Israel. That word hear there is the Hebrew word Shema. He's trying to get everybody's attention and saying, Listen, if you want to know how this works out, Hear this, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Stop there. Everything hinges on one thing for success. And that is something that at first might not seem very practical, but is vital. That is that you must have love in your heart for God. If you're going to impact anybody for Christ, you say, yeah, but I can teach that curriculum. I can do that thing. I can serve God. But if you don't have love, you're that clanging gong, right? You don't have anything. Love for God is so powerful in terms of its witness. If you love God, even a little bit in front of somebody else, It's unmistakably strong. Love for God makes us vulnerable, but it's a powerful, powerful weapon to soften hearts around us. If you love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, you know what's going to happen? As you're looking upward to God, the fear of God is passing downward and outward to other people. It's true. When you love people unconditionally, that is the gospel. It's on display. 90% of your work is done. You say, but I didn't open a book. I didn't go and show the video. You know, no, just love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and wear it on your sleeve a little bit. Put yourself out there with some people and talk about how you love God and it will transform their lives. You are discipling at that point. You love God out loud and you're discipling. You're on the clock. You say, but I haven't gone out and evangelized on corner evangelism in a while. I haven't passed out tracks. All that is great. We need evangelists. We need creative ways to get the word out, to begin to to kind of furrow the ground. But Matthew 28 is bigger than just handing out tracks. It's also starting with the gospel and then teaching all that Jesus commanded to them. And the starting point is love. Moses is wise to say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Because what he's saying is, you are a privileged people because you've got the one true God. That's what he's saying to Israel. There's all kinds of you know, polytheism and false idolatry that was going on, false worship that was going on in the land of Canaan. There were all kinds of dangers where people could go into the promised land and fall into the trap of syncretism and beginning to to blend their God, the true God, with false gods. The nation of Israel, the, the first generation, had created what? The golden calf, right? Melting all their gold down and they created a calf. And I always wondered, why did they create a calf? Like, what's so glorious about a calf? You know, bow down and worship, um, you know, the, the holy moo over there. I just don't get it, you know. But the calf represented their appetite because cows gave milk and they were meat and people were hungry and they were complaining. And when you get hungry and tired and complaining, you do weird things. And so what they did is they created 
what they thought their God should look like, which really is a picture of their own appetite. And so they were worshiping their appetite. They were worshiping themselves by creating a golden calf. And, and Moses is wise to say, look, you've got the right God. He's our God. He's the one true God. The Lord is one. And he's contrasting all of the polytheism that was going on. You can read about it in verses 10 and following. Verse 12, take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Talks about fearing God. And then verse 14, you shall not go after other gods. It's a strong warning. It's a warning even for our church today not to be involved in syncretistic worship, not to involve ourselves with other people who are part of false religion. We worship the one true God. Well, back to verse Five, you shall love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. How important is this verse? It's so important that Jesus repeats this verse in Matthew 22, verses 37 through 38. He says, the whole law hangs on this command. Love God and love your neighbor. You want to fulfill everything? Just fulfill this. You want to disciple people? Just love God. You want to produce fruit? Just abide in Christ. Don't worry about the details. Let it come to you, but love God with everything you got. How do you do that? You know, Moses details this out by saying, with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your might. I think he's less talking about the complexity of man and more talking about the intensity of love that we should have for him. He is talking about the inner man and all those terms, heart, mind, and soul are interchangeable just talking about what makes us tick inside. There needs to be intensity. The intensity that's not just emotional. We're not just called to be emotional. We're called to be ourselves and we're called to have a deep, abiding, continual love for Christ. That's all the scripture's asking for. Just love him. Just be consistent. You do that in front of your kids. You do that in front of your family. So on a regular basis, become unflappable because you love Christ. You're making disciples. It's happening. People will ask you, why are you like that? Why are you drawn upward? I have to admit, I watched a a, a good deal of the NBA finals over the last couple weeks. It was fun. You know, the Lakers, Celtics. I I tried to talk this up first hour. Everybody kind of gave me a blank stare. I thought it was pretty historic. I thought it was kind of cool for... Um, that sort of rivalry to be on display again. And I rooted for the Celtics and uh, they lost. But each team, each team won uh, two games back to back. And I think it represented uh, a commitment on both sides for intensity um, about what they were doing. If a team is solely based on emotion or emotionalism, then they're not going to be able to persevere. They're not going to be able to win. You have to have this kind of heart, mind, and soul commitment to persevere. And that's what it looks like to love the Lord. Not just in terms of emotion and affection, but in terms of commitment, in terms of obedience, in terms of an upward, God-centered focus that trickles down. I interviewed one time the uh, pastors, uh, the associate pastors here, with a question. We were all sitting around the table and talking about parenting and raising our kids in the Lord. And all of a sudden I realized that the tables were turned and I needed to be mentored by these men. I often am mentored by them anyway, but I just said, look, you men have all raised children in the Lord and you've done a good job. And they're all a testimony of God's grace. We know that. But how did you do it? Because my kids are still young and I want to know. They said three things. And it was interesting. Everybody that gave input all kind of blended into these three things as to what they were saying. Number one, teach the word of God in your home. Don't be ashamed of the scripture. Just open it up um, in the home. Secondly, seek forgiveness for your sins. Things that you do publicly, make it right with your kids. And then thirdly, keep your promises. Keep your promises. In other words, don't be a hypocrite. That's, that's kind of the take-home of all three is don't be a hypocrite. Be the real thing in the home and your kids will believe that the gospel is real. I just thought, wow, that is an impactful, powerful word to me. 
Don't be a hypocrite. Don't fall down on this. Hypocrisy, it proves to your kids that the gospel isn't real. That it's not powerful enough to get you through life's dilemmas. Hypocrisy will harden hearts. And if love is the number one powerful agent for changing people's lives, then probably hypocrisy is the number one deterrent for life change. We have to love, but we have to do it non-hypocritically. So, number one, we have to be consumed with love for God. Number two, we've got to be consumed with love for truth. Love for truth. Now, this is not where I shift gears and begin to talk to you about how you need to join Bible college or seminary. I'm not doing that. And I'm not trying to say that you have to be, you know, a great thinker to be a great disciple maker. Oftentimes, though, people underestimate themselves and, I, and underestimate their kids and they underestimate what other people will sit up and pay attention to. And if you will just dignify yourself and dignify people around you, you'll find that you can take in a lot more truth than you ever thought you were capable of doing. The Word of God is powerful, and we need to be all about loving the Word of God and having, watch this, access to the Scripture. It needs to be accessible. It needs to be something that we can bring up in the spur of the moment with an issue or or something about life where, like Jesus, as he's walking with his disciples did, where he said, look, there's a field and behold the sower. He's sowing seed. Let me tell you about giving the gospel. You know, you're sitting there bedside with your kid and your kid, you know, is working through some issue, maybe working through a conflict, got in a fight with, you know, let's just say a cousin per se. (laughs) Anyway, I've got a lot of that going on in my home. But, you know, and you just, you're there and you say, Lord, in your heart, you go, Lord, what verse could I bring up right now? What truth, what thought, what principle? You know, maybe you're sitting with somebody and they say, you know, my marriage is falling apart. I need help. Maybe you don't have the, the, you know, the fix-all verse, but you have access enough to the scripture or you know even where to go to begin to read through truth with someone else. That's what this is calling us to. He gets very practical here in verse 6. He says, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. It's got to be real. It's got to be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children And she'll talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Let's stop there. First of all, the word has to be on your heart. The Spirit of God makes an impression on your heart with certain truth, doesn't he? Certain truths hit you. Maybe you were hit during this morning's message where the Spirit's stamping the word on your heart. And that's what the the picture is from the words teach diligently. It's the idea of God taking the word and impressing it on the heart. I know this week studying this text, I was very convicted that I have not done my job this year as I should have done discipling my kids. They are our number one mission field. Now, it's not that I don't pray with my kids and haven't read with my kids, but the intensity level of training is less than it should be. It's less than it's been historically. And I need to step up. And that's what the Word of God does. It it reminds us of what we need to be about and need to be doing. And I'm hoping that that's happening to you this morning. And that's what we want to happen to disciples as we give them the truth. Now you might say, look, I don't have time to spend with people. I don't have time to do this diligently. I've got a full-time job. I've got two jobs And maybe you're a single parent. You say, I don't have time. Well, what Moses is wisely doing here is he's setting the children of Israel up for success. Because he's really not asking for anyone to take anything away from their life or to add anything to their life. He's not. He's not. He's saying, integrate the word of God into your life. Most of us, we can't subtract anything from our lives. I mean, we we can get on these sort of guilt trip modes where we say, you know, if I just do this less and this more and we all have this many hours in our week, I can do it and I can muscle through it and it lasts for a week, right? Or two weeks. Better to do this. You probably should think about your life like this. You probably don't waste as much time as you think you waste. When you rest and you sort of check out, you probably need that rest. Um, When you, you know, do certain things that are fun that seem to be a waste of time and you're just doing it for doing it's sake, that's probably a good investment of your time. Probably. 
So how do you teach the word of God then in the midst of all this? Well, you've got to have it on your heart, in your life, because the word of God means something to you and because you're loving God. And then you need to look for opportunities where your life is reprioritized, where you're still doing the same stuff, you've got the same schedule, but you're willing to put yourself out there and talk about God. You say, well, how can I take time with coworkers or friends or relations? Well, just involve people in your life and, and meet with them and talk to them. And if the priority is giving the word of God, the time will open up for you. Let me give you an example. I was uh, convicted this week that I had not met with somebody that I had kind of promised some time to. And I was on my staycation this week, right, where I was home and just kind of sitting there. And I had a window of time to just call the person up. Well, I didn't change anything in my routine. I just picked the phone up and called him up and we just started talking. And one thing led to the other and 10 minutes turned into about 45 minutes of some pretty meaningful conversations or discussions. And we were talking about his life and his future and where he's going in ministry. It was a fantastic conversation. And then he came over with somebody else and I needed to um, run an errand with me. And I just sort of was able to work it out where that became the priority. My day didn't really change. Nothing really added or was subtracted from my life per se. But I just hung out with this guy for 20, 30 more minutes. And so all of a sudden I had found myself discipling him in that time. And it was powerful. But it wasn't something that I had to be so deliberate about and so life-altering about to fit it in. It's just when you prioritize certain things like people and, and making disciples, it happens and it kind of blooms into your life that way. And that's what he's saying. He's saying, do it, verse 7, as you're talking to them, as you're sitting in your house, as you're walking by the way. Matthew 28, put it this way. Jesus said, go while you're going along the way, make disciples. So live your life, but live your life in view of the call and command to make disciples. And it will fold together. When you lie down, when you rise up, it's typically more just tweaking our goals more than changing our schedule. It's very decompartmentalized here in Moses' strategy and his application. It's not so formal here. One pastor, J.C. Ryle, put it this way. He said, in every step you take about them, in every plan and scheme and arrangement that concerns them, do not leave out that mighty question, how will this affect their souls? Seeing people as souls, as people who need the truth, the scripture. It's being willing to take some time with the word of God and read it like a motorboat and read it like a glass boat. You, you read the Bible and you scan through sections of scripture and cover a lot of territory quickly. And then you take some time to meditate and you go down deep and look at the Bible in its nooks and crannies. Like you would looking at the ground as you pass over it in a glass boat underwater. If you do that, the word of God will be on your heart and it will be accessible. Look at verse 8. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. It's the idea that just like you have a ring on your finger or a watch on your wrist, the word of God is, God is accessible. Uh, the Pharisees took this too literally and too far when they created phylacteries, these little boxes that they hung on their forehead and they stuck little scrolls of scripture in there. It was way too literal, way too over the top, way too weird as far as a fashion statement. But anyway, um, yeah, it's the idea of having the word of God like glasses where it's in your frontal vision. It's like on your doorpost of your house or on your walls, not literally on your doorpost. It's the idea that the word of God is in your sight line all around where you would have natural sight lines around your home so that you can be deliberate and spontaneous with the truth. Well, what happened? The children of Israel, when they went to Canaan, they were successful, successful for a time. And then you know what happened? They fell away and they went after false gods. And ultimately, the nation of Israel, when Jesus came, rejected Jesus. They missed the point of where Moses was headed in this section. Faithful at times, but waxing and waning and ultimately rejecting Christ. And now we are in the new covenant age where we've been given the Great Commission, 
to make disciples. Where we can pick up where they left off, ultimately Israel's going to come around again. However, we are in the meantime to be making disciples of all nations. We're to be fulfilling this commission. Paul passed the baton to Timothy, Timothy to faithful men, and we are part of the faithful men and women who are continuing to give the fear of God down to new people, creating a legacy. All right, here's a few take-home points. Number one, I just want to ask you look, to look for a Paul in your life. Pray for a Paul. Pray for a mentor, a godly woman, a godly man, somebody. doesn't have to be older than you. Pray for that in your life. It will help you tremendously. Secondly, look for a Timothy. You say, I don't have anything to say to anybody. Well, study the Bible in the morning and then tell someone in the afternoon what you learned. Okay, I mean, it's that simple. Just get the Word of God in by iPod or, you know, by book or by studying the Word and then share it with other people. Someone over and someone under you. Number two, don't add or subtract your life. Just reprioritize it. We talked about that. Number three, don't underestimate your ability to learn or teach, especially with kids. Don't lower the bar so low that they go, oh, the creation story again. You know, I mean, you don't want the, oh, thank you, Noah's Ark. You know, I mean, don't do that. You know, those stories are biblical. I mean, I'm not trying to downplay the word of God at any one point, but give them the meat and potatoes in the story of the Old Testament. Give them the truth about sin and God and his sovereignty and grace and redemption. Don't sell these children short, please. Please. They can take in so much more. And if you dignify them, it's just like putting a a young child on the hunt and you put a gun in their hand. Well, if you can dignify them to do that, let's dignify them with the truth of, of God's word. And they'll respect you for that and be forever grateful. Same thing with other people that we think don't have the aptitude to follow along with some heavy-duty truth, well, try. Just try it. Say, hey, you want to have a discussion about God's sovereignty and man's responsibility? Let's hash through that. You know, let's talk it through. Let's talk about uh, the atonement. Let's talk about the atonement of Christ. I mean, that can be very stimulating, and oftentimes we sell people short and wonder why nobody's interested. Well, we're called to teach all that Jesus commanded. Number four, your children are your first mission field. We've talked about that. That's obviously true. Number five, transparency deals with hypocrisy. If you feel like you've been too much of a hypocrite to make disciples, then be transparent and open yourself up. Be willing to reconcile with people. Number six, not shooting for perfection, but a willingness to reconcile with people and get things right so that we can begin to disciple again. And then number seven, fill your heart with truth. So it spills over onto your children and to others. You know, we're called to love God with everything we've got and study the Bible. If you study the Bible this week and you study with other people in mind, you'll study more. Do you know that? If you, if you study with the, with the idea, you know, Lord, send somebody in my life either who will teach me or who I can teach, you'll do more. And it will be more effective and more focused. And I would encourage you to study the word of God with other people in mind. Anchorage Grace Church should be known as a disciple-making church. A church of life-on-life ministry. Where you're growing together as this great, wonderful, organic vine that's just growing strong. Where relationships are strong and tight and you are united together. This is why we have even the table fellowship at the end where we've got some food that will be out there and some coffee. It's for you to stop and connect just for a little bit of time on the Lord's Day. And then that would build, that that would build throughout your weeks together as you live the Christian life together in relationship. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. We thank you for your truth. I pray, God, that we would be faithful to follow your commands the command to make disciples. Lord, thank you that you are our teacher and we are your disciple. We are the ones who want to follow you even all the way to heaven. Thank you for this morning and thank you for this flock. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand as we have our final dismissal. It's good to be with you with the word of God this morning. This passage is, 
is near and dear to my heart, and I would just ask you to consider reading it through. Now that you've been taught this text in kind of a precise word-by-word way, phrase-by-phrase way, now read it through again. Don't let the Word of God be something that you were confronted with and then you sort of forgot about what you just learned. Let it sink deeply into your heart because this is my philosophy of ministry that I'm trying to have take effect in our church. I really do want us to be a disciple-making church. And I know there's a lot of discipleship that's going on, but I want it to be even more. And I think that's God's heart for His church and for His people. Let's pray one more time. Father, thank you for this morning. I pray, God, that we would go strengthened in the inner man, that that we would be strong in the grace of God, and that we would love the gospel. And if there is anyone here who does not yet know Christ, I pray that they would come to know you, that you would open their eyes, that you would open their hearts, and that, Lord, we would be available to counsel and minister to each one. I know that there are counselors who will be up front waiting for anyone who needs to talk, and I'll be in the back um, as well. Lord, we thank you for this good day in the Lord, and we pray that we would be faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. Dismissed. Thank you.